meeting will start and, and uh, let people row in. Welcome to the official launch of the London Transitional Justice Network. My name is Yavor Angelov. I'm a research fellow at LSC Global Governance and also one of the co-chairs uh, of the network together with Professor Chandra Sriram. Uh, Chandra is director of the Center for the Study of Human Rights in Conflict uh, at the University of East London and Dr. Leslie Vinjamuri. Uh, Leslie is the co-director of a new center for the international politics uh, of um, conflict, rights, and justice. Um, it is really a great pleasure to welcome our distinguished uh, panel to help us uh, mark this uh, occasion. And I must say, it is also a relief uh, given the uh, last signals we got a couple of days ago about the movement of the volcanic ash cloud. <laughs> but thankfully, we, are, uh, we have all of them uh, here tonight. Uh, Natasha Kandic is Executive Director of the Humanitarian Law Center in Belgrade. Natasha is recipient of numerous international human rights uh, awards and I think for many uh, she uh, is someone who embodies the struggle for justice uh, in the region of the former Yugoslavia. Uh, David Tolbert uh, is currently President of the International Center for Transitional Justice. He has a long career in international justice, most recently uh, as Registrar of the UN Special Tribunal for Lebanon. Uh, and Rudy Titel, uh, Rudy is a pioneer in the study of transitional justice. She is Professor of Comparative Law at uh, New York Law School and currently also visiting professor at LSC Global Governance. Now I would like to acknowledge from the start the generous support of the LSC Annual Fund uh, for this event and also to invite all of you to join us for a reception following the event which will take place uh, at the atrium gallery which is just next door uh, in the same building. And then finally before I give the floor to the speakers I would like to invite Leslie Vinjamuri to introduce very briefly uh, the initiative which we're launching tonight. Thank you Yavor and I should say especially thank you to Yavor who really was um, central in making this happen both in terms of getting everything organized and conceptualizing the event and, and really thinking through who to invite, which you can see we're very lucky to have the, the people that we do. I just want to say a couple of words about what the London Transitional Justice Network is. We started small about a year ago um, with a few meetings uh, in the spring of 2009. And, it, and by, in saying that, I wanted to thank one person who I don't know if he's here tonight, Lars Waldorf, uh, who was one of the original founders as well as the three of us. Um, but he uh, unfortunately, well fortunately for him, unfortunately for us, then moved up to York to the Center for Applied Human Rights, but he was very much part of this initiative. Let me say a little bit about who we are and why we're a network. Um, we, tonight is a formal launch of the network, as you know, and as Yavor mentioned, we're, we're sort of a group of organizations, I'm gonna mention some of those, but run um, out of our three respective centers that Yavor's already mentioned. Uh, who's in the network right now? Um, we have more than 12 colleges and universities represented in the network. Um, and within this network, in addition to a range of advocacy organizations, in addition to universities, we have a range of advocacy organizations, foundations, think tanks, and individuals from the government. Um, amongst our academic members, we have a range of disciplines. So we have legal scholars, we have scholars from politics, from international relations, from sociology and from other disciplines as well. 
Um, I think anthropo I think we have one anthropologist, and we encourage more. Um, our, our other organizations, let me just list a few uh, so that you're aware. We have um, several members uh, from Amnesty International. I see Chris Hall here in the front row, which who we're very, very happy to have here tonight. Thank you. Um, we have several from Human Rights Watch, including the director who's here tonight, Tom Porcius. Um, from the European Council on Foreign Relations, Anthony Dworkin. You didn't know you'd be mentioned, did you? <laughs> Uh, from the Sigrid Rousing Trust, the Open Society Institute, the Overseas Development Institute, Conciliation Resources, and the Foreign Office, just to name a few. Um, why are we a network? Since we're at the LSE tonight, I, I sort of thought, well, you know, network, institute, center, uh, foundation, all these, there's lots of these organizations. Why are we a network? And Chandra and Yavor were really very clear that we are a network and not a workshop or a center or something else. So I, I took a look at the academic literature on this, um, and I came up with three uh, maybe lessons or, or ideas for the way forward um, for networks. First of all, what's the definition of a network? One definition of a network is a collection of individuals or groups that pursue repeated and enduring exchange relations with one another and at the same time lack a legitimate organizational authority to arbitrate and resolve disputes that may arise during the exchange. <laughs> um, Anne-Marie Slaughter, who I'm sure is known to most of you, she's currently directing the policy planning staff at the State Department and is also um, ordinarily dean of the Woodrow Wilson School at Princeton University, has written on networks and in her book she argued that networks offer the general virtues of speed, flexibility, inclusiveness, and an ability to cut across jurisdictions and create a sustained focus on a specific set of problems. So this is from her book, A New World Order, in 2004. So the first lesson that I took from this, there are many, um, but it's that we officially lack the capacity to resolve conflict, and we're unlikely to produce a consensus amongst our members, so the best way forward is robust pluralism. We are, not, we are more than the sum of our parts. Um, secondly, from the literature, what other potential do networks often? Um, open networks, as opposed to closed networks, and I think we aim to be an open network. Open networks with many weak ties and social connections are more likely to introduce new ideas and opportunities to the members than closed networks with many redundant ties, which eventually disintegrate into cliques. Uh, Mark Granovetter, the social theorist known to many of you, referred to this as the strength of weak ties. So lesson number two, <coughs> as a network, I think and I hope that we aim to remain open rather than closed to new members, so please remind us of those people who are not currently in the network, uh, and to extend our access to new ideas. When I worked at USAID in 1992, I think this was referred to as the, the goal of aiming to avoid that age-old problem of reinventing the wheel so the network potentially allows us the capacity to do that. Uh, and then thirdly, on inter-network networking, um, a group of individuals, a network is a group of individuals ideally with connections to other social worlds and in that way is likely to have access to a wider range of information. It's better for individual success to have connections to a variety of networks. And this, I think, is important because I noticed that we have several individuals here from the Oxford Transitional Justice Research Group, the Essex Transitional Justice Research Group, Research Network, the Essex Transitional Justice Network, 
the Oxford Transitional Justice Research Group, and to mention a few others who are not actually here, the, Africa, the African Transitional Justice Research Network. We've had individuals from all these organizations who have actually actively worked with us to think through and conceptualize who we are, what we aim to do, um, and several of whom are member, who are members. So the, the network does not seek to be necessarily closed um, in any way, shape, or form, and is very much open, I think, to, to working with other networks. Let me say in closing, our board, um, I've told you sort of who our members are, but our board is also very international and I think reflects the ambition and goals of the network. Most of our board members were not able to be here tonight, although one is on the panel, um, because we don't have that kind of funding yet, but I just wanted to mention them by way of thanking them. Um, so our mem the members of our International Advisory Board, Christine Bell from Northern Ireland, Christine Chinkin from the LSE, Pablo de Grief from New York, Anthony Dworkin, who is here tonight, thank you, Ambos Gaon from Israel, James Gandhi from Kenya, who some of you will know, Priscilla Hayner, known to most of you, based in Geneva now, Neil Kritz at USIP in Washington, D.C., Ramamani from Oxford and Sri Lanka, Sarah Mendelssohn, who might have to temporarily suspend her role since she's gone into the um, current U.S. administration as of today, uh, and Yasmin Louise Suka from South Africa, Rudy Title from New York, Abdel Tejan Cole, Sierra Leone, Lars Waldorf, now of York, and Harvey Weinstein in California. So thank you to them and thank you to all of you for turning up tonight. Thank you very much, uh, Leslie. I think what we try to uh, to achieve with uh, with uh, today's panel, apart from launching the network, is also we try to to bring together a group uh, which uh, will bring very different reflections and perspectives on uh, transitional justice in the new century. We we try to have one activist, one practitioner, and, and one scholar, uh, and and hear their reflections. So, without further ado, I would like to turn. Now to Natasha and invite her, invite her to speak first. It will not be too easy to speak about uh, transitional justice, uh, especially after uh, this introduction. But I will try to uh, describe uh, what's happened with uh, justice uh, in a post-conflict society, especially in uh, um, post-Yugoslav countries. Uh, I will try to, uh, uh, to explain the uh, whole process uh, uh, speaking about uh, international uh, elements, uh, domestic official, official approach, and uh, civil society approach. And of course, I think it's the best uh, strategy if I speak uh, about achievements and uh, about uh, results, uh, uh, results and uh, pro uh, problems and, pro and problems. All of you know that international community established international criminal tribunal during the war. It was in 1994. Uh, uh, Office of Prosecutors started to uh, to work. And uh, also, uh, you know that uh, many <coughs> uh, perpetrators based on uh, command responsibility were uh, tried, uh, sentenced, 
but also you know that uh, in time uh, of armed conflict uh, uh, and uh, in time of functioning tribunal, uh, genocide is happened in uh, Srebrenica and Bosnia and Herzegovina. And I wanted to say that uh, there are uh, really serious and very important uh, uh, results, uh, but also uh, also it's very difficult to explain how uh, it was imp uh, possible to uh, uh, to have an uh, international tribunal, judges and prosecutors, and uh, genocide in the same time. What is the uh, benefit from uh, the tribunal? Uh, we have facts uh, about what's happened uh, uh, in the past, not only facts about, uh, about the concrete crimes <coughs> and about uh, concrete per perpetrators. We have facts about, uh, facts about uh, why the crimes is happened. And for uh, the future, uh, for uh, the future generation and for, uh, 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 for um, historians and uh, it's very important to have facts about uh, about uh, 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 why the crimes is happened uh, in the former Yugoslavia uh, what is also important to uh, to mention that uh, uh, that uh, we expected that international trials will bring uh, uh, reconciliation but uh, I think it was uh, uh, too much to expect uh, from uh, one uh, tribunal because the, the main duty of the tribunal is to bring uh, uh, justice for the victims and perpetrators and you know reconciliation process is a process uh, uh, who should be initiated by the people uh, from the former Yugoslavia and uh, um, it, it should be their need, need to, to reconcile with uh, the past and uh, their history. And uh, uh, after the war in Kosovo in 99, uh, um, you know, the, the domestic war crimes trial started, of course, un under the pressure of international community. But uh, uh, I think uh, it was uh, important to force uh, uh, post-Yugoslav uh, um, authorities to start with, uh, with uh, national trials, to take uh, responsibility for, uh, to punish, uh, to try perpetrators, and to, to, to think uh, that establishment of rule of law uh, depends from uh, domestic war crimes trials. Now we have everywhere in the region domestic trials and uh, what is the main result? That uh, national authorities, uh, national prosecutors are willing to try and sentence ordinary perpetrators. It's not the same uh, if, we speak, uh, if we want to see what's happened with uh, individuals who are uh, responsible uh, based on command responsibility. It's always uh, uh, difficult to see cases of uh, command responsibility because uh, many of them who, uh, who have responsibility for the war and uh, crimes uh, are still uh, in institution, especially in police uh, and army. And uh, national parliaments are not so uh, 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 are not uh, 
uh, institution with uh, really democ uh, democracy. Uh, they, uh, m uh, many members of uh, national parliaments uh, were the members of parliaments in time of armed conflict. And we cannot expect from them now, you know, to uh, to, uh, to, uh, to say that, um, uh, that everything what's happened in the past uh, is uh, uh, their responsibility and, you know, to, to expect from them to, uh, to criticize themselves and to, uh, to expose their uh, opinion to, uh, to the public. But uh, a good thing uh, uh, is that we have uh, uh, war crimes trials, but uh, uh, what uh, we don't have, uh, um, considering uh, official uh, approach to the to the past, there are no public institutional official debate about the, the past. We have uh, war crimes trials, but without uh, media attention, without uh, uh, without attention uh, um, of uh, politicians. I never seen politician who are. Uh, interested to come to monitor the trials, to speak about the trials. For them, trials are uh, uh, important because international community uh, requires uh, uh, domestic war crimes trials. Also, they see international trials are ob as uh, obligation uh, uh, to uh, obligation, uh, international obligation. They don't see trials as uh, domestic uh, need uh, to uh, uh, to open issue uh, as a way to open issue about the past, what's happened in the past, uh, uh, who is responsible to speak about political responsibility, moral responsibility. No, for them is uh, international obligation and the majority of them, uh, they hope that, uh, will, uh, that uh, they will close uh, page of the past uh, with, uh, uh, clo with closing uh, the International uh, Tribunal uh, in the 2012. But one very important uh, uh, thing uh, happened. Uh, uh, civil society from whole region understand uh, that uh, war crimes trials are not in uh, uh, enough if we want to establish factual truth about the past, if we want to uh, to create, uh, to build uh, um, unfactual record about the past. Uh, and uh, what is the best achievement and uh, the best result? Uh, uh, the best result is uh, achieved by uh, civil society in the region. Two years ago, we started to think how to establish uh, facts about the past, how to prevent uh, politicians, uh, historians into, uh, in the future to manipulate with the uh, uh, with, um, number of the victims, uh, to start to, with diff political interpretation about what's happened. And, uh, we started to think and to uh, take some concrete uh, measures. Uh, in October 2008, we established regional coalition. Coalition with uh, victims association, human rights organizations, uh, youth organization, with main aim to establish, uh, uh, to establish model of regional com uh, commission 
to organize a consultation process about uh, a regional commission who will deal with facts about war crimes and uh, facts about all victims. And to uh, organize debate with different uh, uh, groups, uh, civil society groups, to keep issue of, uh, of past uh, alive and to make pressure on institutions in the region uh, relating to the needs uh, uh, to, uh, uh, to debate about the past. And now we have uh, uh, 945 uh, organizations, members of coalition. We have uh, debate uh, uh, everywhere in the region. And uh, uh, what is uh, what is what is uh, uh, benefit? Civil society debate is uh, only debate in the region about the past. Uh, it's only space for victims to speak about their experience, about their needs, about their expectations, and uh, what is important for them. And now uh, we came to uh, uh, to. Uh, to uh, to agreement about uh, some issues uh, who are relevant for uh, uh, for whole process and establishment of regional commission. All members uh, uh, of coalition, victims association, victims, uh, youth organization, all of them, uh, uh, they, uh, for them is uh, very important to uh, establish the facts about, uh, war, about the war crimes. Uh, until a uh, date, uh, we uh, didn't come to agreement about, uh, about causes of the war. Some participants think that it is so, uh, too serious uh, issue for, uh, commi for regional commission to, uh, uh, to uh, examine uh, uh, causes of the war. And until date, uh, we think that uh, priority sh uh, should be establishment facts about the war, about all the victims, uh, name all the victims, and to try to establish, to build a, a climate in the region based on compassion and solidarity with all, uh, all the victims. And what is also uh, important that uh, victims from whole region, there are no differences between, between Serbs, Albanians, Croats, and uh, Muslims relating the issue of missing persons. You know that we have uh, more than 16,000 missing persons. And uh, uh, we have everywhere in the region uh, governmental commission dealing with missing persons. But uh, there are no development in that. And we think that the regional commission and all participants think that believe that the regional commission uh, uh, can uh, uh, can uh, s support uh, uh, families to uh, to and society and official commission to discover mass graves and to support families in their effort to know what's happened with uh, their relatives. Also, what is important uh, uh, to say that um, uh, that the participants in discussion uh, believe uh, that uh, uh, that all states in the region have obligation to uh, to establish factual record about the past and to uh, 
leave interpretation about the past to historians and the young generation in the, for, uh, in the future to deal uh, with uh, that. Now we have, uh, uh, we have everywhere discussion about the model and uh, in the end of uh, uh, May, in the beginning of June, we'll start uh, to discuss the first dr uh, draft of a model. Uh, it means that uh, all participants in discussion uh, will consider a draft and to, to, uh, to, uh, to give their opinion what they think about, for example, criteria, uh, a criteria, a criteria about uh, selection and appointment of members of, uh, of a commission. It's not easy. It's easy to uh, to take a good uh, uh, solution from other uh, truth commissions about criteria, but uh, there are no cases of regional commission, and you know uh, it means that we need to establish or create uh, criteria who will uh, uh, help us uh, to uh, uh, elect members of commission who will be respected in whole region. It means uh, to, uh, to appoint a uh, uh, member from Serbia who will be respected by society in Kosovo, uh, what is very difficult to see uh, how it's possible, or to, uh, to, uh, to appoint, uh, appoint member of uh, member from Croatia who will be respected but by whole society in Serbia. But it's difficult, but it's our uh, task and our, uh, our, uh, our uh, plan is to, uh, uh, to continue to, to discuss uh, until the end of uh, this year. And uh, in the spring of uh, the next year, we'll organize campaigns for million signatures. And our plan is uh, uh, is uh, is going to uh, uh, to organize uh, a special event on the first June 2011. Uh, we'll submit to all uh, governments and parliaments in the region our model of regional commission, who will deal with all uh, with facts about all victims with a million signatures as uh, support for uh, a regional commission. And later, uh, if you have any question, uh, and uh, uh, I will be uh, glad to, uh, to speak more and to tell more. Thank, Thank you very you. much. Thanks very much, and congratulations. Uh, the establishment of the network. Uh, it's an honor to be here. I see a lot of friends in the audience and those uh, of you who have worked with me in lots of different places. And of course, it's an honor to be on this panel and it's always a great honor to follow Natasha, who's one of the great heroes of transitional justice. And uh, we spent a lot of time working back and forth uh, during the nine years I spent at the Yugoslavia Tribunal. So it's good to be with her uh, today. Uh, I was asked to, in just a, a few minutes, to talk about uh, some of the trends in uh, transitional justice, um, which sounds remarkably like trying to predict the future, which uh, has uh, a pathway that is replete with difficulties. So instead of uh, talking about trends for the future, what I thought I would do is spend some time 
talking about six or seven issues that I think are in the forefront that uh, face this movement, that uh, face the network, and that face those of us who are working in transitional justice. Because I think there have uh, been a lot of, uh, there's been a tr tremendous amount of progress in the area of transitional justice in recent years, particularly over the last decade. And I thought I'd reflect just momentarily about that and then turn to what I think are some of the challenges that we face, some of the issues that face transitional justice and those of us who are working in the field. Um, we've seen a, a tremendous amount of, uh, of efforts and uh, achievements in the transitional justice field, really a field that hardly, hardly bore a name uh, before a decade or so ago. Uh, in the area of truth-telling and truth commissions. Uh, we see an expansion of the use of truth-telling and truth commissions. I was struck the other day when I was, uh, and I'm very new at ICTJ, uh, I think the six weeks or so, so. Uh, but just a, a week or two ago, I was sitting with the new commissioners for the Truth Commission in Canada, which is addressing the rights and wrongs that, with respect to indigenous population in Canada or First Nations in Canada who were uh, placed in these, these, these uh, people in First Nations were placed in residential homes oftentimes very far from where they from their homes and uh, forced by the state to live in these homes and there's a truth commission that's been established and one of the commissioners is, uh, is the chief of a First Nation country uh, within Canada. And we brought together those people with experts from Latin America, so very much a North-South dialogue, and, and those from Latin America who had worked on truth-telling and truth commissions and sharing their insights and their knowledge uh, with, those, uh, with the, new truth, uh, the new commissioners for the Truth Commission in Canada. So there's been, I, we're beginning to, we, we see, and certainly at the, at the center, we see a great deal of comparative expertise and sharing between uh, different parts of the world. Uh, in the area of uh, criminal justice or you know, prosecutions and international justice, we've seen enormous uh, steps. Obviously, the creation of the International Criminal Court, and the International Criminal Court will uh, very soon uh, have its uh, annual its uh, its meeting in Kampala, its review conference to look at the achievements and the problems the court faces, the 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 ad hoc tribunals which are now in their final phases and winding down, but also we've had hybrid courts in Sierra Leone and in Cambodia, uh, and very particularly as Natasha mentioned, uh, one that I'll talk about a little bit later, and that is the state court in Bosnia. So there have been a number of, when, when we look back, there have been a great deal of development in truth-telling in, in, in criminal justice, and also the whole victims' rights revolution is, is that we began really in the 80s with the 85 Declaration, and moving forward we now have uh, victims actually being able to participate in the international criminal court proceedings and to claim reparations. Uh, these are not fully realized yet, but there's a start. And then we see in domestic, uh, uh, domestic contexts uh, the claim for reparations. In Morocco, uh, ICTJ has worked extensively there, and we see women actually being able to 
corporations in their own names and really what is a, a very important development in that society. So what I'm going to say about these challenges have to be seen against a, 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 a backdrop of tremendous movement and accomplishment, I think, in the transitional justice field. But we do face a, a number of challenges, and I would, I would make a number of observations. Um, one that's pretty obvious, and I think is already largely taking place, is that we see very much a shift from the post-authoritarian situations that transitional justice mechanisms were used in in Latin America and Eastern Europe to transitional justice in post-conflict environments. So much of our work today and much of transitional justice is in the context of uh, po post-conflict as, as uh, distinguished between post-authoritarian societies and particularly, obviously, uh, in Africa. A second issue that I think that we have to think a lot about, uh, those of us who are practitioners, and I've asked to, be, to speak in my uh, capacity as a practitioner, is the, is the issue of the demand for empirical proof of, the, uh, of our work. Uh, those, of, uh, those of us who have to raise funds and, and look to, to, to have programs, uh, donors will increasingly ask for uh, <coughs> empirical proof or the, what, what some commentators call the problem of knowledge, showing what you do has a direct impact, improving this in a kind of quasi-scientific way. I think I can make an extremely strong argument, powerful argument, I think most of the people in the room can make one for transitional justice, but as the field matures, I think that we're going to face this issue and face it, uh, and, and face it more deeply. Uh, and I think what one of the, one of the issues that as a practitioner when we try to face this issue and we, we look at it, what we need, what we have to be careful about, and I think we've seen some of this already, is a kind of transitional justice template. And we see this in other areas. I've worked in the rule of law area. I've seen this happen where you develop a template and a checklist, and the idea is if you check all the boxes, the donors will be happy, and you've accomplished transitional justice. And that is very far from the truth. Each one of these situations has a particular context. We need to bring across uh, uh, knowledge across uh, different countries and apply them and we need to to be careful to avoid the idea of a simple transitional justice template. Another big challenge and one that uh, obviously uh, as a someone who's been very involved in the international justice uh, uh, movement is the issue of complementarity and the ICC. We're now at a situation, as I mentioned earlier, where the ad hoc tribunals are in the process of closing down. There are some very serious issues that need to be dealt with with the ad hocs, uh, as I think Natasha touched on. We have big issues with the, with the archives, for example. What's one of my least favorite terms in the world, residual mechanisms that we deal with uh, uh, with respect to those tribunals. I would prefer to talk about the principles of justice and holding individuals accountable and making sure that the, that the records of these ad hoc tribunals will, be, will continue to be available for domestic prosecution and for truth commissions and history's purposes stake. But the, the dominant narrative is now residual mechanisms, which is something I obviously don't like. But in any event, uh, as the ad hoc tribunals close down and 
the, the hybrid courts have an unclear future and are finishing their work. The, in, in terms of criminal justice pr uh, processes, we are talking about the ICC and domestic prosecutions and how complementarity works, if it does at all. And there, and there, are, there are serious questions about this, and it is, I think, quite appropriately and rightly on the, uh, on the forefront of the discussions in Kampala. It is one of the, uh, the issues to pay, be taken up on stock taking. I think there's some really interesting lessons to be learned, um, particularly from the Yugoslavia Tribunal. Uh, Natasha talked about uh, the, the prosecutions in the region. When I was deputy prosecutor at the Yugoslavia Tribunal, we developed a transition team where we actually transferred not just cases. Some of you who, who follow the, the work of the Yugoslavia Tribunal know about the so-called 11-bis procedure, which transferred cases to, to domestic uh, courts. But actually, much more importantly, we began to share our information that was not used in indictments and opening up archives, uh, not confidential archives, but other archives for the availability of prosecutors in the region to access that, and then begin developing uh, programs when prosecutors from the former Yugoslavia, or the countries of the former Yugoslavia, would actually come to The Hague and begin to work with our teams. Now, that began probably 10 or 12 years too late. And, and, but I think there's some important uh, lessons to be learned there, and there, uh, there, there, there's, there, there are a number of lessons to be learned. One is the importance of, of taking complementarity seriously, sometimes referred to as positive complementarity. What is the court's role in this? And then what is the role of what I would call the rule of law network on the ground? We have millions and millions of dollars and, and pounds and euros being spent on the ground by uh, rule of law providers, uh, whether they be DFID and, and donors, uh, USAID uh, and uh, the European Union. How does that ultimately connect up with the work of the ICC? How do these, how do these things work together? Because at the end of the day, if we simply have a few prosecutions in The Hague, and with little, uh, w without, uh, without prosecutions and, and uh, or criminal processes on the ground, complementarity, which is at the, the heart and the cornerstone of the ICC, is going to become uh, perhaps a dead letter. And without the other mechanisms, uh, or at least the other criminal law mechanisms in, the, the, in terms of ad hoc tribunals, domestic prosecutions are going to be few and far between and we would have lost a tremendous opportunity. So uh, I, I underline this, what do we do, whether complementarity, where does complementarity go, what does it actually mean both for the court and for the whole, and for, the, for those donors and rule of law networks on the ground in these countries. Another question or issue that I think faces the field, and that is the question of transitional justice and development. Uh, I think it's, uh, it's, 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 it's a truism that obviously transitional justice and development uh, should be overlapping and that transitional justice and development are, should work hand in hand. Uh, but uh, at this point, uh, they're, they're really two different communities. They're development actors and they're transitional justice actors. And I think to some extent it's important for those of us working in transitional justice 
to realize that to some extent and it's unclear to me to what extent this is that this is what the trend is but that we've been in an era of justice really justice has driven a great deal of the agenda with the with the international tribunals with the development of the ICC and development is at least with many with many donors and with many of the development agencies is really coming to the floor and we to some extent may be looking at a bit of a development paradigm but there are very clear connections between transitional justice and development I would argue of course the transitional justice is essential for development but one of the things that I think we should be thinking about is the socio and economic rights and cultural rights and also the the responsibilities of multinational corporations and liabilities of multinational corporations in the context of development and for this I give the example I made earlier which clearly touches on cultural rights and that is the the Canadian Truth Truth and Reconciliation Commission another important element or issue that I think it's worth touching on is that we need to work harder and to consider the deepening local ownership one of the one of the current one of the true advantages I think of our work at ICTJ is that we share information or share knowledge and expertise across across different continents and between different countries but we also need to to ensure that local knowledge and local ownership of the process is is there that it's not simply a question of internationals doing transitional justice but that we develop local networks and local transitional justice actors as well and to some extent that is one of the reasons at least with ICTJ we have regionalized and have many of our experts now in country from a practitioner's point of view to I would make a point that's obviously very practical it's not particularly very theoretical but it's the question of and I suppose there are a few funders in the in the in the in the audience as well but how do we pay for transitional justice and a shrinking in an economic situation where we have shrinking shrinking revenues and we face cutbacks and economic difficulties and particularly I think transitional justice and human rights generally and human rights issues related issues are going to come under increasing strain now I don't want you to worry I'm not going to be passing the hat during the during this at the end of this meeting but I think that we're all of the NGO actors and all of us who are involved in these issues and I including more broadly human rights are going to be facing these issues in a time of economic stress and uncertainty anyway I think I probably used all my time up but I wanted to put those issues out perhaps they're not trends but they're they're certainly things that I think that we need to we need to be considering and thinking about with respect to transitional justice I will I will say that closing on an optimistic note transitional justice is 
really here to stay it's part of the landscape it a great deal has already been achieved and i'm i'm i stand here today to say that your transitional justice network is a, is a testimony to that so in closing i want to salute you for establishing these networks and look forward to working with you in the future thank you very much thank you david So uh, it's great to be here, a lot of uh, friends and colleagues, and to uh, join others at the table. Uh, I, uh, I was going to ask Leslie, where does Traveling Salon fit uh, in with networks, you know? Uh, but uh, fortunately, I uh, now have a more, uh, a more of a connection with the LSC. And I thought what I would do is, um, uh, in my remarks, uh, talking about 21st century transitional justice, is to uh, reflect back on its origins and then uh, uh, perhaps offer three thoughts about, uh, you know, in line with uh, David and Natasha's uh, remarks, three ways that 21st century transitional justice differs from uh, its 20th century uh, uh, form for those of us who were there uh, earlier. Now, um, I was thinking uh, how I had met Yavor and Natasha, and that was on a rooftop in Belgrade. And all of us on the panel, I guess, cut our teeth uh, on uh, transitional justice in the Balkans. So that's interesting. And I know that I've been at other talks where uh, everyone had been in part of the earlier debates in Latin America with, with uh, Leslie and with Lee and, and others. And so I just want to uh, uh, take us back. Uh, you know, it's, it's clear from uh, the remarks and from the establishment of, of uh, the networks in the UK, and it's remarkable. Uh, there's nothing in New York like this. Uh, I would like to have connections, uh, networks. Uh, I'm thinking galaxy-wide, right? <laughs> because uh, I got to, I got to uh, take it a step further, you know, and have New York involved uh, somewhere and have the networks connect. But I'm not enough of a techie yet to, to do this, but soon. So the the question, you know, it's clear that there's an entire field of inquiry and analysis and scholarly interest, uh, and uh, and and uh, this is the place uh, for it. I think the diversity of students, uh, faculty, the uh, global nature of London, and uh, um, uh, and uh, the interdisciplinary aspects. This is this you know the the fact that the that the focus is here. I think it relates to the empire, to uh, the uh, the UK's role uh, uh, internationally. A lot of different uh, reasons. It's probably overdetermined, but beyond. Uh, the UK, obviously there's uh, tremendous uh, proliferation of centers, journals, scholarly interest, and so that part is clear, and I guess the, the, uh, the question uh, we might have, we're in a spirit of, of stock taking, as David mentioned, it's 10 years of, the, of, the, of one institution, the International Criminal Court, but it's actually three decades since the self-conscious use of the term transitional justice which I coined, okay, I never imagined that it was going to lead to this, but I coined in 1991, so for those of you who are interested in deep history, uh, when I uh, was asked, because I am an Argentine by birth, uh, to comment at the Council on Foreign Relations on, on a, a development, uh, a debate about punishment versus impunity in the Southern Cone. And I was asked to write an advisory memorandum. Uh, I was not a member uh, at the time. Uh, it was part of the Latin America workshop. 
at the council. So this is deep history. And at the time, I said that I thought it was too dichotomous, this idea of punishment versus impunity. And the question on the table was, could the Southern Cone have democracy without a full policy of prosecutions? And it was very clear, even by that point, that that wasn't going to happen. And at the time, I remember struggling with that memo. I never struggled with a three- or four-page document like that again, before or after. And I indicated some alternatives, because it was clear that the judiciary were compromised in a lot of places. There were a number of reasons, if you looked at the context, for why alternatives might be a good possibility to solve a number of problems. But I also indicated some various aims and values. In any event, it was clear that it was complex. And then the communist collapse was happening at the time. And it was also clear that this is not just a Latin American problem. And so the issue grew. I had applied for a grant with USIP, where I used the term transitional justice as a bridge between regimes. And the way I – what I intended at that time was the view that this was – this reflected a sense of justice or an idea of justice that was different than in ordinary times because of the political and other conditions associated with political transitions. And it was a use of a term that is philosophical, legal, and so on, but in connection with a certain political – an understanding of a certain political conditions and political circumstances. It followed that justice then would not reflect an ideal. And it also followed that in such hyper-politicized moments, not that there aren't – there isn't always politics, that law would operate in, as we've seen, a very vivid and dramatic way to show us the complexity of achieving due process and rule of law, and that there was a lot that we could learn from such moments beyond just helping or ameliorating the situation. So that was the way the debates seemed to run at the time. It was associated with a particular politics and the regime change that was happening very quickly as a result of the end of the Cold War. And it was not a surprise that Latin America, Eastern Europe, South Africa, Central America, a lot of – I don't distinguish them just by way of region, but the magical resolutions of conflict in great part were a result of the end of a certain kind of bipolar conflict and support by the U.S. and the Soviets. So what's changed? Well, I'm going to propose three dimensions where we see a change from that use of the term, and some of this builds on the prior remarks as well. The first is the move from this view of an exception to what one might think of as a pervasive or transitional justice all the time. David alluded to this, this comfort level in using the term to address post-conflict as well as what we regarded as transition, which was not just authoritarian, but a move from one – let's call it a repressive regime to a slightly better one, you know, liberal – and that sounds like Woody Allen, you know, but a liberalized, more freer. And it was clear that a lot of the 
places wouldn't become democracies overnight. But there was there, there's a uh, there was a meaning associated to a political transition. And now the phenomena uh, of that uh, has become associated with transitional justice is associated uh, uh, um, in great part with uh, internal conflict, ethnic and civil wars, and that too uh, was a shift. Which leads to the second point, and that is a focus uh, uh, less on the state uh, and more uh, to uh, a broader array of interest in non-state actors. Um, and um, uh, relating to the first point, instead of strong state transitional justice, which was always thought to somehow re uh, like, like constitutional law of the 20th century involved limiting state power, how do we punish those who abused power? Instead, uh, the focus is on uh, weak and failed states and how do we build up certain capacities and even if we have to bring in regional actors or multi uh, have a multilateral approach, um, you know, really dealing with uh, a very different kind of phenomenon and a different conception of the state and a different uh, understanding of the political problem. The third uh, uh, point uh, is the, uh, the role of law here. And, um, and I would say that you know, in the, you know, we had a clearer understanding at least of how we were using the term of, of what law's role could be in advancing democratization. Uh, people talked about state building, uh, about particular institutions associated with state building. Now, uh, the, as you saw from the panel, there's a far uh, uh, more layered and complex role of transitional justice and it is thought to uh, uh, possibly advance a whole array of purposes from uh, promoting peace and security on the ground to uh, uh, possibly a rule of law uh, and healing even in the future. Um, now it's clear from you know th th those three points and certainly the latter that uh, given the array of actors involved and given the uh, diverse of uh, purposes uh, that these, these, this 21st century transitional justice can't work in a linear or harmonious direction. Uh, it certainly uh, it, uh, involves uh, chaotic uh, developments. Um, uh, uh, that it's not clear that this is uh, progressive in any way. At, at least, you know, we'll get to assessment in, in a minute. But it, it, you know, it's hard to imagine how one does evaluate and assess without at least being very candid and self-conscious about the understanding of the multiple uh, purposes afoot and the various uh, interests of the various state uh, and non-state actors, and, we've, and, and certainly all, all of the speakers have, have alluded to them. So there are many examples, and some have already been uh, referred to, uh, but it's clear that one sees both uh, regional and local uh, judicialization. Uh, um, uh, the tribunals have proliferated at, at all levels. Uh, uh, tribunals are more involved in supervising conflict and, and supervising transitions than they've ever been. Um, uh, in addition to the local responses, we've seen, you know, obviously the ongoing uh, UN special tribunals, uh, as well as even the World Court and the European Court of Human Rights uh, involved in this. And here, um, you know, just in the spirit of evaluation, you know, the, the one question is how, how, would, how, do, how should we think about this? Obviously, violence uh, continues, uh, and, uh, and we have, uh, you know, mixed results. Um, I would in, uh, suggest that we should take a broader lens uh, approach and consider some of the uh, uh, normative, uh, um, the discourse, the normative discourse that uh, the turn to uh, law uh, has, uh, has um, uh, resulted.
resulted in or in some way shapes the, the politics uh, on the ground, this is something certainly that involves a research agenda and, uh, you know, and, and it's something that the network and the students' uh, work in this area uh, can uh, contribute to. Um, we, we can see that, uh, that the move in terms of the law is, is, is not just, it's not just associated with transition, it's associated ex ante with uh, supervision uh, and management of conflict. It's not just criminal, but also civil, uh, as, as was mentioned, individual and collective. And so uh, there's a lot of phenomena to look at, uh, uh, even if one were just to focus on uh, the judiciary. Um, uh, so, you know, so we could say more about the phenomena. Uh, one uh, uh, point here is uh, to note is that beyond the uh, successes uh, that um, uh, Natasha and uh, David alluded to, uh, the the, at least in terms of numbers, the numbers of, of domestic trials, for example, in, in the Balkans and, and elsewhere, that there are other uh, broader <laughs> ways of thinking about the normativity uh, that, uh, that uh, uh, relate, that go beyond compliance. So for example, uh, the relationship uh, of the, the EU to the ICTY, uh, the ways that, we, that compliance with these tribunals is thought to somehow send a message about uh, cooperation generally. Now, you know, one, might, one could be agnostic about this and, 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 and try to uh, uh, think about this in, a, in the broader term, uh, in what way uh, does transitional justice now operate to uh, present a, a path or uh, to legit legitimation that might not be afforded uh, in pre-democracy uh, uh, conditions. Um, and so this is something that we need to be more self-conscious and reflexive about. Uh, this, it may well help to explain the last decade's proliferation of uh, transitional justice, particularly in situations uh, of immediate, uh, immediate post-conflict. Now, so transitional justice has clearly become a critical element in the post-conflict security framework. Um, uh, there are uh, UN units uh, that uh, deploy transitional justice. Uh, we, at a time of growing numbers of weak and failed states, we can see that, uh, that there's been a turn uh, to uh, these uh, mechanisms. And here, uh, there is a certain set of debates about peace versus justice, uh, particularly um, in, uh, in, in the context of current uh, conflict. It, uh, a lot of the, um, of the um, arena has, has been in Africa. And, and one can say from thinking about these three dimensions that it's clear that this is too simple uh, a framework uh, to, uh, you know, to uh, uh, comprehend uh, the uh, complexity of the various aims uh, and the contestation uh, uh, between the uh, actors uh, about the, these aims and what, what would it mean to have uh, um, to advance security and rule of law and, and legitimacy uh, in, in uh, post-conflict uh, situations. So I think we have to, uh, it really invites uh, more than anything uh, a research uh, agenda uh, on these issues. Um, since the ICC was mentioned, let me throw out another illustration um, uh, and I want to allow time for questions, so I'll just, uh, you know, there are many, obviously, but uh, people mentioned, have mentioned already on the panel that it's 10 years uh, uh, of the International Criminal Court, and uh, there, in, just with respect to one institution, we're talking about uh, stock taking. Well, here it's clear that the politics of, of the ICC were not as we uh, originally might have thought, right? Uh, you know, first there was, you know, the, the evident politics of east-west and north-south divide, 
Uh, yes, it's present, but for example, there are entire regions that are absent from uh, the ICC still, uh, such as, um, you know, for the most part, Asia. Uh, all, almost, I think, all of Europe is there, uh, is in the ICC, right? <laughs> so, uh, so it's interesting. There, it's not a clear uh, uh, east-west divide. The major military powers, uh, many of them are not uh, signatories. There's a lot we still don't know about uh, the way uh, w uh, the judiciary and, uh, and other uh, political and military power uh, operate. Uh, we still don't know much about complementarity, right, the relationship of the international and the local. And part of the reason is we, you know, that we, we're not very, uh, we haven't been very uh, self-conscious about the aims uh, here. Um, we still don't know what would count to advance what uh, uh, at, at, at the ICC. Um, and the fears, the original fears that the court would operate to limit state sovereignty and to constrain state actors, those fears uh, as well seem to have been uh, uh, overstated because for the most part the court has been used by states to address their own uh, private uh, the, the, uh, opposition and local, uh, local actors on the ground. Now, what do we say about that? Well, that's an interesting uh, uh, observation, and it points to this dimension of the, the use of the courts to, uh, to address um, uh, uh, conflicts uh, in weak and failed states where there is, in great part, the absence of concentrated state power and monopoly over, over uh, weapons uh, of, of destruction. So there's a lot um, uh, to uh, reflect on in the spirit of, of stock taking. Um, uh, and, and many other, uh, you know, examples um, uh, which we could talk about, uh, but I think in the interest of time, I, I, I will uh, I'll, I'll, uh, wait to, to questions. Let, let, let me just uh, um, uh, observe that at, at this point, because we can see that, uh, that transitional justice has become somehow normalized and entrenched within existing legal regimes, uh, and has become a part of the lexicon, both in human rights and humanitarian law, and it's also been informed by uh, those uh, regimes, um, that um, the judiciary have been brought in uh, more and more, but that it isn't the invisible hand of the law. And this is another uh, research uh, project, one in which uh, Yavor and um, Marika and others at the uh, Center uh, for Global Governance, Mary uh, Cowder, have been involved in, which is the role of civil society uh, in uh, transitional justice. And that is that uh, it's clear that even if there were uh, resources and strong states, that there are other actors with other, uh, other aims that are highly active in this sphere and have been turning to uh, the legal mechanisms uh, to advance their aims and, and other non-legal as well. So uh, obviously uh, uh, the RECOM project, which Natasha talked about, uh, is one. In Latin America, uh, many of the uh, uh, highlights of universality jurisdiction and uh, of um, the development of international law have been occasioned by and kept alive by civil society. So that, you know, bringing us back to the beginning, 30 years after Junta rule, Argentina has uh, uh, an extraordinary number of trials and a revival of human uh, rights related prosecutions. Um, much of this has been kept alive by civil society, but, but we know that's not the full story, that there must be a dynamic uh, relationship between the state and non-state actors, and that there's a certain politics of transitional justice and a certain usefulness of this mechanism uh, by uh, uh, the various uh, um, 
uh, governments at this time uh, that uh, that is taking place, and that the and it's also shaping, of course, uh, our understanding of state responsibility. So there, are, you know, the Pinochet case is another example, an illustration on the one hand of universality uh, jurisdiction, but on the other, an example of of involvement of uh, and initiation of of victims that were happened to be extraterritorial and and living in Spain. So uh, uh, let me just. Uh, 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 begin to conclude, and that is that um, we can see global transitional justice at this point, a contemporary phenomenon that's, uh, that is functioning across time periods, not in the immediate uh, transition, in the steady state, beyond the transition and beyond the state involving diverse actors, diverse political stakes and interests, and, um, and that this trend has an unclear political trajectory. Uh, it's clear that there is uh, judicialization has come into play, often out of periods of political impasse, uh, so uh, that uh, where the judiciary is another player that can be brought in uh, to uh, play a role where uh, other political actors have, have not been able, have not had success. So that's uh, certainly an observation of this period. But that beyond that, there's a judicialized discourse which also shapes uh, the politics, uh, a language of, of transition and accountability and a language which calls upon uh, diverse actors to uh, take accountability. Um, l let me uh, end there and just say that the um, that there's a lot that we don't know. Uh, in the spirit of assessment, um, we could um, uh, begin empirical projects. There are uh, many in the audience who are who are, are working on this. But in the rush to measure, we should also uh, uh, slow down and ask ourselves: What are we assessing? Uh, what are the relevant outcomes? Are we comparing outcomes in institutions? There's often a mix of desired outcomes, and I think that the network will be in an ideal position to do this sort of scholarly work because it is both uh, oriented to uh, normative uh, theorizing and policy. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, I'm happy to be a part of it. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Rudy, David, and Natasha. In the spirit of broadening the actors, now we have around 20 minutes for uh, questions and discussions, and I think what we'll do is uh, might be easier to take a few questions at a time. Uh, yes, the lady in the back. My name is Huria Mosadik, and I'm from Amnesty International. I'm really inspired by Natasha's experience from uh, Balkan, and I just wanted to s ask that is it really the international politics are playing a role on transitional justice? Because what you said, uh, you have so many ad hoc courts going on at the Balkan uh, simply to please the international partners. But unfortunately, in Afghanistan, there is no digest for transitional justice among the international players. And uh, this is like a big frustration for many Afghans in the country where I am coming from. Where you really see that the human rights perpetrators are part of the power. And uh, right now, unfortunately, the negotiations with the Taliban are going on and the Western countries are stamping okay with that. So when you talk to the people in the ground, there are no one to listen to the victims' voices. There are no one to ask what are the need of the Afghans, who, how do you want to deal with their past? In 2001, during the Bonn Agreement, they brought 
a big number of the human rights perpetrators who were engaged in massive human rights violations in Afghanistan, and they became partners of international forces and international community to fight terrorism. So what happened as the result, they came with a definition of good human rights abusers and bad human rights abusers. And this is like right now what happening by bringing the Taliban, like the misfortunate excuse that you're giving is because we have uh, already so many human rights perpetrators, it's not enough, we need to bring more. So I really want uh, one of the panelists to answer or elaborate Thank more you. on this. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, Horaya. Any other questions? Yes, lady in the front. Um, I'm Claire Moon from LSE Sociology and also the Center for the Study of Human Rights. And I just wanted to make a comment, really, which is a bit of a provocation, and it's about the term transitional justice. And it relates to some of the conditions and histories that, Ruti Titel, you've described. And um, the concept, I think, is pretty much a victim of its own success. By success, I mean proliferation. Um, because it was once quite narrowly defined. It's now associated with a divergent set of practices, conflicting moral imperatives, contexts that are not even recognizably transitional, um, for instance. So we could say that the term transitional justice has little analytical precision to the extent that it's really lost its explanatory power. And I'd be interested in um, some reflections on that. Great, thank you. And another question in the middle. Yes, right there. Uh, I'm Misha Gavrilovic. I have followed uh, in The Hague uh, the trial of Mr. Milosevic, and I have followed it from the defense point of view. In other words, I've been in touch with the defense team. Uh, my question here is the key word there, namely justice. What is it? The way that we understand justice in this country and elsewhere is that we hear out the prosecution's case, we then hear out the defense case, where the golden rule is that the defense must be given the same resources and the same time as the prosecution. And then we have independent judges and jury making the verdict. Now here, in the last 15 years, in the United Kingdom, I have never heard anyone speak for the defense. I have heard here, in this very hall, uh, 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 Mr. Goldstone, Judge Richard Goldstone, Chief Prosecutor, speak here. Louis Zaba, Chief Prosecutor, spoke at the LSE. Uh, Richard Goldstone spoke twice at the Royal Institute for Foreign Affairs. Uh, Mr. Uh, Mrs. Uh, Carla Del Ponte's right-hand man is now Sir um, um, uh, Jeffrey Nice, spoke also at Mr. the LSE. Mr. Gavrilovic, can you just get to the, have I heard the question? The defense. What is the uh, question? Uh, well, my question really, and also, by the way, Natasha Kandic has helped the prosecution in the case. Not Once the again, what is the question? The question really is uh, your definition of justice, because all I see now, it is prosecution justice. And prosecution justice, uh, the dictionary definition, is a lynch. It would be very nice now that we've started traditional justice here in London, 
that you consider getting someone to speak at your defense uh, on your Great. case I, who has your, actually I, been on the defense. It would be the first time in 15 years that this has taken place Thank you in very the United much. Thank you for that question. We had another question here in the middle, um, fifth row in the middle, right here. Okay. Sorry, can you just pass? Thank you. I, I can tell I set the wrong place here uh, in the middle. My, my name is Martin Menneke. I'm a professor for international law at the University of Aarhus in Denmark. So I'm, I'm part of the galaxy coming to, to London. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I'm wondering about um, the interplay between international and domestic uh, justice mechanisms. All the three panelists touched on this. Um, Natasha Kendrick seemed to, to suggest that the international influence was positive and was necessary for the process, right? But we all know there has been a lot of criticism that the ICTY is victor's justice and that it's imposed and so on. And then um, David Tolbert was also talking about it in the context of complementarity, but then you seem to talk a lot about inability and rule of law, but we all know a lot has to do with unwillingness, right? So the question comes in again of internationals imposing justice mechanisms. And then Ruti Tatel was speaking of the term of global transitional justice. And you can, of course, ask yourselves these days, with a lot of the discussions between African states and European states, to what extent we have a global understanding of transitional justice. So I was wondering, going to Kampala, going to the review conference, whether you could elaborate a bit on whether that is not one of the big challenges, whether we really have one understanding of transitional justice, and whether we are maybe moving away from that with universal jurisdiction being on the retreat, and so on and so on. Thank you. Great, thank you very much. I think that gives a lot, uh, a lot of material for, for our panelists. Um, uh, the first question about Afghanistan. Uh, uh, there is uh, uh, almost uh, too little justice, right? And then another question of, uh, from, uh, uh, from the audience about uh, uh, too much justice as persecution rather than prosecution. Almost we've heard these uh, these types of arguments again and again, and then. Uh, of course, uh, a, a more direct, directly one addressed towards each one of you on the international and local. So Rudy, would you like to start and? Uh, yeah, well, I, w I was going to go to the question uh, that uh, Professor Moon raised about the, the term. And, uh, and I, I agree. I, I mean, uh, when I used it in, in 90s, 91, uh, I didn't mean everything that, that they say. <laughs> you know, that obviously, I was doing with the center, that, that yeah, it yeah. took off. Right with and the, and I think the center is an example of uh, of an actor right uh, uh, of a new actor not so new now right how long um, I'm new but the you're new about ten, uh, ten years about the nine same years, ten, nine, ten years uh, same as the IC. so but I think that you know that's why we need to be self-reflexive but when we use the term say what do we mean right maybe that might facilitate you know okay I could have branded it I didn't you know and and uh, I and uh, and as you say it would have meant one thing but I don't know there, you know a lot of interesting words are used in different ways right I mean justice you know people use in different ways so why wouldn't transitional justice be used in, in a variety of different ways I just think we you know the various uh, actors uh, could be a little perhaps a little more self-conscious about it and uh, and I've I have invited the uh, other actors to uh, discuss this and to not uh, necessarily exclude uh, other meanings but rather uh, engage with them so I think that's a useful uh, thing and it's something that uh, in a scholarly institution or in in, in the spirit of robust pluralism one we could have that conversation and it could be an interesting one great thank you David 
Yeah, uh, let me pick up on a couple of the points. Yeah, on the defense, uh, well, yeah, immense amount of monies have been spent on defense, including the Milosevic case. Uh, I go to conferences all the time where I hear defense counsel talk, uh, and I would say that um, in the beginning of the ICTY, I, and I wrote an article about this, uh, I was on the record about it, and I called the ICTY and defense a troubled relationship because I thought defense was neglected. I think over time that was addressed. I think it's been addressed in other tribunals. I think if you look at the special court for Sierra Leone, where you have a principal defender, and actually the special tribunal for Lebanon, where the defense is a separate pillar of the, of the court, there have been some lessons learned on this. Um, and uh, so I, th I think if you look uh, on the long term in the international justice area, defense now takes a, a much more prominent role. And, uh, and frankly, you see a lot of prosecutors who have ended up on the defense side because it's a lot better paid. But I want to rub that point on. Uh, <laughs> I also would, uh, and. That's a Marxist observation. That's a Marxist observation. And of course, we have the whole phenomenon of the self represented accused, which is really, uh, I think, uh, something that needs to be come to, ter come to terms with because uh, that actually has probably politicized the proceedings in a way that uh, no defense counsel has. So, um, there's a good, there's an interesting study by Pat Wald, a former, yeah, a, a, a former judge of the ICTY about how to handle the self-represented accused. Um, on the uh, other issues, yes, on unwillingness, uh, I think in the Yugoslavia context, a great deal of unwillingness was also uh, faced. It, it wasn't just an ability. In Serbia, for example, um, in the early days, a great deal of unwillingness to cooperate with the ICTY, same thing with uh, Croatia, unwillingness to to bring uh, prosecutions as well. Over time, that dissipated to some extent, but not completely. Uh, uh, Natasha has made the point uh, to me before that a, a, a war crimes prosecution in Serbia of a Serb is, can be much more powerful than uh, one in the ICTY or in the, the, the state court. So yes, it is uh, one of the issues uh, in the ICTY, of course, the unwillingness issue was addressed uh, in, in large measure by the pressure from the European Union and outside external actors to to force cooperation with the ICTY and uh, the the kind of magnet of the of the uh, European Union uh, was important in making the domestic changes in the country where unwillingness started to melt away. You don't have those factors necessarily in Africa and other countries. So I think this is one of the great challenges of trying to make complementarity work, both on the incapacity front and on the unwillingness front. I think I should stop, because I think the Afghanistan question is probably important. Uh, I wanted only to, uh, to say that uh, in case of former Yugoslavia, international uh, involvement uh, resulted with, uh, with uh, a positive uh, uh, impact uh, because uh, uh, based on uh, international trials, uh, we have uh, facts about what's happened, not uh, about whole past, 
but uh, relating to very important mass, uh, uh, mass crimes, we have fa facts. And based on those facts, uh, um, domestic war crimes trials started. And uh, now they cannot, you know, uh, bring this uh, decision and verdicts uh, against the facts uh, uh, established by International Criminal Tribunal. But uh, both uh, international and domestic war crimes trials didn't succeed to open a debate about the past. You know, we have facts, but uh, who care about the facts? You know, the victims, they have their own truth their personal truth about what's happened. And we, we don't have politicians who will, uh, you know, who will uh, say in public that facts are very important, that facts are uh, important for the victims, for society, for the future. It is the main problem. problem. And uh, uh, civil society uh, managed to open issue uh, about the past uh, on a level of uh, debate. And I think without, uh, without public debate, uh, and without instruments who will be focused on uh, victims, uh, war crimes trials are not enough. But of course, uh, uh, the former Yugoslavia is a specific case, really, uh, because uh, there are no uh, other examples in the world uh, with international trials, with uh, the regional, uh, national level, levels, and with civil society uh, debate. In, uh, in the in in the Balkan is, uh, and uh, I understand uh, what's happened in uh, Afghanistan, but uh, also what's happened in Congo, and uh, I think uh, uh, there's space for civil society, you know, to to start to make pressure on international community to, you know, uh, they are everywhere uh, human rights network, transitional justice network. And you know the the, uh, the the main person is David Tolbert who can <laughs> <laughs> help very much. <laughs> oh boy! <laughs> on, can, on I can, can I add yes, one quick point on this? Uh, and it's a, it's a different one because I agree with everything Natasha has said. But one of the projects that we have are documenting these crimes, and we have a mapping project. You're probably familiar with it. We're we're documenting the crimes that are occurring now, but also in the pre-Soviet period, in the Soviet period, in the post-Soviet period. Because one day, um, th those records will be imp they're important to the victims now, obviously. But for some transitional justice process, eventually. And another example that's another very difficult situation in Burma, for example, where today uh, there doesn't look like there's going to be any transition, but there may be a transition well down the road. We're documenting those crimes. We're, do we're talking to victims, getting statements, mapping the crimes. So there, is, there are things that can be done in a very practical kind of sense to address these issues for the future and create a historical record, even though it's impossible to have a prosecution or a truth-telling process or something like that. No, I, yeah, I just wanted to say that, um, that uh, on the point of, about the international and the domestic and also re regarding Afghanistan, that I think that there's very interesting work that the center is doing, you know, Yavor and Marika on Afghanistan and, uh, and also on the uh, relationship of the international, of the ICTY and the domestic courts in the Balkans. So I, I think that this is an area that is amenable to more than one uh, fact-finding, set of fact-finding, and the mark of a liberal society would be that there would be um, more than one uh, historian and, 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 uh, and fact-finder. So, um, 
Well, thank you. We've come to the end, unfortunately. However, the good, uh, the good point is that uh, we have now a reception next door uh, where you hopefully you can take your questions directly to our speakers. But please, uh, th uh, thank you for, to all of you who came and to all of you who uh, asked questions. And please join me in thanking the, the panel ladies for their. Thank you. Thank you.